Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday, dear listener. Hope you are feeling hale and hearty. As for us, well, poor Alex was on single parenting duty this week, so he is exhausted. He was doing this because I was in downtown San Francisco for TechCrunch's yearly disrupt event, so I am also exhausted. Although I have to say it was really amazing to see so many people, including colleagues. Some of you know that I started Strictly VC some years back. Then TechCrunch pulled me in as their Silicon Valley editor, and I've been doing double duty since, which is borderline insane, basically, except that I really do love TechCrunch and the people that I work with over there. And these events where everyone comes together from around the world is a great reminder of this. They also have an amazing events team, which if you happen to go this week, you know to be true. It was like a spectacle. (laughs) Anyway, speaking of events, we are involved in a few things coming up for what it's worth. On Tuesday afternoon, October 25th, we are interviewing famed VC Chris Saka of Lower Carbon Capital for the SOSV Climate Summit. Registration is free, so you can just look this up online and sign up if you care about trends in climate investing. Tuesday evening, we are interviewing another famed VC, Ron Conway, along with David Talbot, the founder of Salon, at a smaller get-together in San Francisco where the future of the city is the topic of discussion. We'll hopefully have more for you from this event afterward. The week after next, we will be in Lisbon interviewing the founders of the NFT project Board Ape Yacht Club. Maybe we'll see some of you there as that is another massive event. Last but not least, we are hosting our very first Strictly VC event in more than a year on January 12th. That's a Thursday night, high up in Salesforce Tower. We're still putting this together, but we always have great guests, great attendees too. We've hosted Katie Hahn and Sam Altman and Vlad Tenev of Robinhood and Mark Andreessen, among others. Don't miss it. If you want to kick off your new year the right way, just look for Strictly VC on Eventbrite and you'll find it, I hope. Now, For this week's interview with guest Antonio Rodriguez, who helps manage Matrix Partners, the firm's bets include Canva, Zendesk, HubSpot, and Oculus, among others. It also has $800 million burning a hole in its pocket right now. We think you'll like this one. But first, the news. Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter seems to bring more and more bad news every week, and this week is no exception. Yesterday, we learned that the federal government is considering conducting a security review of Musk's plans to purchase Twitter, which could potentially put a kibosh on the deal. Twitter's stock fell 4% today in response to this news. Reports also emerged yesterday that Musk may have plans to fire as much as 75% of Twitter's staff once he takes ownership. Now comes word that Twitter's bankers are paying a high price for doing business with Musk. According to the Wall Street Journal, banks such as Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, and Barclays will not syndicate the $13 billion they are lending Musk, but keep this money on their balance sheets instead. These banks signed their deal with Musk in April. Since then, the market has tanked, and rising interest rates and growing concerns about a recession have made the prospect of selling Twitter's debt seem difficult at best. In fact, Twitter could be the biggest so-called hung deal of all time. That's what Wall Street calls loans that it can't syndicate, no doubt to the delight of Musk, whose sense of humor could charitably be described as juvenile. Why should anyone care about a bunch of banks getting stuck with a loan? 
The more money banks have to keep on their balance sheets, the less money they can lend to others. Given how badly banks have fared this year, with many suffering a steep decline in third quarter profits, don't be surprised if Musk's bankers are reaching for any lever they can to tank this deal. And you can take that to the bank. The New York Times has an interesting article today about generative AI and, more specifically, Stability AI, which on Monday announced that it had raised $101 million at a reported one-plus billion dollar valuation from Co2, Lightspeed Venture Partners, and O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. Stability Diffusion, like competitors Doll E2 and Midjourney, allows users to create images simply by entering text. The programs then use algorithms to comb the web for images and mash together an appealing approximation. Unlike Dolly 2 and Midjourney, however, Stability Diffusion is open source and thus highly customizable, which is both a feature and a bug. On the one hand, underground artists and meme makers can customize Stability Diffusion to their heart's delight. On the other, the program could lead bad actors to produce violent or sexist imagery, or worse. However, Imad Mostak, the founder and chief executive of Stability AI, apparently subscribes to the view that AI must be free from any form of government or corporate control. At a party thrown by Stability AI at the San Francisco Exploratorium that attracted no less than Google co-founder Sergey Brin, AngelList founder Naval Ravikant, and VC Ron Conway, Mostak said that unlike corporate behemoths like Google and Facebook, Stability AI would not erect a panopticon to spy on its users. Mustak is not your typical AI advocate. Unlike many in the field of generative AI, he is not an academic or a researcher, but a former hedge fund manager who specialized in oil trading. As he told the Times' Kevin Roos, we trust people and we trust the community, as opposed to having a centralized, unelected entity controlling the most powerful technology in the world. Up next, Connie's interview with Antonio Rodriguez of Matrix Partners. But first, a word from our sponsor. Findem helps you go from source to hire with your first three candidates for free. You know exactly who you want to hire. And Findem has the best search engine in the recruiting business. Upload your job description, confirm your search, and they'll find them. Findem sources candidates you've never seen before so you can hire top talent faster. They're so sure you'll go from source to hire that Findem will guarantee your first three intros for free. Try Findem's source to hire at www.findem.ai slash strictlyvc. That's F-I-N-D-E-M dot A-I slash strictlyvc. Antonio, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really nice to meet you. I don't think we've ever talked before, which is kind of crazy. Is that right? That's right, Connie. I was looking through my outboard brain, aka my Gmail history, and I think we were introduced once before we never met. And I'm sorry about that because you're one of the few people I know who could have a link back to the red herring, which is something that's like ancient history in our world, but it started both of our tech careers. That's funny. Yeah, I know. I feel so old, but it's true. So you were an entrepreneur then during the Red Herring days. I was. I met Jason Ponton when he had more hair. 
I, I will tell you, Jason never had a whole lot of hair. I know. I was trying to couch my words carefully there. So more <laughs> seems like an appropriate thing. <laughs> and so you were backed by Matrix and then they brought you aboard. Is that essentially what happened? That's right. So, yeah, a million years ago. So Matrix backed me back in 2005 in a company that I did as kind of my first company where I wasn't just an early employee, but a founder and a CEO. And they were the largest investor and super helpful and quite different from any of the other investors I'd had. And I had the luck of being with some companies with some very good kind of well-known investors. When we sold to Hewlett Packard and I was done with my time at HP, the team approached me. I thought, oh, this is, I wouldn't try this at almost any other firm, but I'll try it here for a couple of years. And that was 12 years at the end of this year now. That's incredible. I'm sure it goes fast. So we're talking today in part because Matrix has done so well that you have a new $800 million early stage fund, which is a lot bigger, almost twice as big as your last three funds, which were all $450 million. So that's sort of interesting. The fact that you maintain this size over time is a little bit reminiscent to me of Benchmark, which has always said, we tried this experiment once, we raised a lot of money back in the dot-com bubble, and it was a lot harder to get the kind of venture-like return we wanted, so we never did that again. So obviously you made a very different decision this time. Tell me why. Well, so we did the same thing or a similar thing to what Benchmark did back in 2000. We raised a billion dollars. And then very quickly thereafter, we returned half of it because we felt at the time that the opportunities would have required us to go beyond what we like to do, which is kind of the earliest stage investing. What's different in 2022 is, and we spent a lot of time in 2021 thinking about this as we got geared up to raise the fund because the default, of course, would have been to do another fund in the 450 to 500 range, which is mm-hmm. where we've been for 20 years. Two things that changed though, Connie, in the environment. One is, and, and by the way, I say this presuming that we want to stick to from concept to series A. So in our fund that we just finished investing, every single deal we did was either at concept or at seed or pre-seed or post-seed or post-seed two or series A. And we didn't do any deals where we would enter at the B or beyond. So for us, it really wasn't about stage drift. In fact, I'd say if it's one thing we've been disciplined about over the last 20 some years is being very stage focused. But two things that happened in the environment that were different. One is just to play at the later end of that, which is a series A end of that, due to new entrants and due to existing players moving backwards into the A, you went from having to write a $10 million check to, in some cases, $15 or $20 million. And Mm -hmm. for us, that felt like a stage we know well and we love to do. And we wanted to make sure we could keep doing those entry checks at $15 and $20 million if if the market had grown. And I think despite all the correction talk and despite how the environment changed, especially for our categories, I think that's still very much true. And then the second thing was we do very few deals and historically over the firms, not just last 20 years, but 40 years, we quickly honed in on this process of trying to do 12 to 20 deals a year or something like 40 deals a fund. And what we noticed in the last five years, and this I think you and others have reported widely about is because we do so few deals and because we're so early, we're historically very much at the top of the cap table from an ownership perspective. And as larger pools of capital have come in and aggressively come into the B rounds and further, it felt important for us to be able to maintain that position at the top of the cap table, not to get put in the number two position from an ownership and potentially influence perspective because somebody comes in and writes $200 million over the course of the B, the C, and the D into one of our companies. 
Got it. It's interesting time. You closed this fund in June. The market's kind of taken a hit. The startup market has also taken a hit, but you're saying at the early stage, you're not seeing these series A stage deals get any smaller. So you're no. still having this, right? You know, these are still 10 to $15 million rounds. Yeah. And are VCs getting more of an ownership stake for these larger checks at least? I don't think so. Not yet. I think the other qualifier, I'd say, obviously, for the best entrepreneurs, they round size can still be $20 million plus plus. The other thing I'd say is we tend to like the more technical projects, whether that's software or hardware or or ideally at the intersection of both of those. Mm -hmm. Those companies just need more money. I mean, historically, they've needed more money. And that means that now they have to do these larger rounds. And then specifically to your question, are the terms worsening for founders? It hasn't been the case there. We're beginning to see that in our own portfolio and subsequent rounds in the form of deals taking longer to get done. Some investors are starting to introduce the notion of structure, which was Mm -hmm. something I thought we had beaten out of this ecosystem back in my day as an entrepreneur at the very end of it, but Mm -hmm. it's coming back. And probably also pricing dilution for bees and beyond. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you say worsening terms, which is exactly how founders would interpret it, but I'm sure VCs sometimes would argue that it's more rational than things that had gotten in the last couple of years. In terms of dilution and raising more money so that you could compete with these larger funds that were writing bigger checks and not wanting to get diluted, Obviously, it's very interesting what's happening at the late stage market. I'm aware that Tiger has less capital than they did. It's interesting to me that John Curtis is leaving. I'm not sure exactly what drove that decision. Maybe he wants to leave. Maybe there's also just less money to invest. I have no idea. I'm just speculating. But CO2 is shrinking right now. A lot of people are taking a step back. So what is your expectation or what are you seeing on the later stage end of things? Is it easier now to maintain your pro rata without having to elbow your way into the ownership position that you want? Yeah. I mean, I I think for sure it is easier and it will continue to get slightly easier. I would say one thing, Connie, that's interesting again about the deals we like to pursue. If you look at our best exits across the last three funds, you'll find that in these medium rounds of B and the C, they don't often lend themselves well to what I would call the spreadsheet jockeys, which don't always, but largely tend to represent the kind of diligence process and excitement that some of these players you mentioned and others who were flooding that mid-stage, late-stage market before. Uh So you really need more conviction. And in a lot of cases, what that meant was you would have to step up as opposed to expecting in some of these deals that a Tiger or Kotu would come in and in 72 hours fund the company. Oh, because they were so technical that it was too hard for them to understand the business? I think they're smart people at those places. So I'm sure they could understand the business. But I think the top of funnel function there is largely driven by a spreadsheet that has maybe 10 rows and four columns. And your net new ARR growth and your cohort churn will drive a lot of the aggressive excitement to really pile in. And again, I'd say about half our portfolio can do that spreadsheet well and has benefited from the largesse of those firms over the last few years. And, mm-hmm. and the other half can't. And the important thing is that There's really no correlation between whether you can or can't do that in the mid-stage because at the end of the day, sometimes the more technical and harder projects require faith and conviction through that mid-stage of growth. And that's part of why maintaining our pro rata in this new environment, though it may be easier, will be equally necessary. Got it. And when you say that you typically are at the top of the cap table and then you try to maintain your ownership stake, is that a 20 to 25% ownership stake? Is that fairly typical or is it even bigger than that? 
Yeah, no, it, that's about right. So historically, it's been anywhere between 20 and 25%. Over the last year, as I'd say, we were tilted to 18 to 20 when we would enter beyond concept. And then during periods of more fallow fundraising, we tend to go from the 20 to 23%. But definitely 20 to 25% is the long-term structural target for us when we enter anywhere between concept and A. Great. And when you say concept, are you talking about incubating companies? Yeah. A number of our companies, actually including my company, have started at one of our offices with an investor and an entrepreneur working at a whiteboard on an idea. And we probably do, I don't know, 5 to 10% of any given fund at that and continue to do it. How many IIRs, EIRs, excuse me, do you have working with you right now? Right now, we have one across both offices. So our office is in San Francisco and then here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But in the last fund, there were three different incubated companies where it was an EIR who came with an idea or a market space or a set of experiences. And then we partnered them with an investor and they worked on a concept from scratch. Oh, great. Can you mention one of those? Sure. So I've mentioned one from each of the last two funds. So in the last fund, one of our investors on the West Coast was the head of product at a company called Twilio. Mm -hmm. So at Matrix, the, the quick team, 10 seconds is, I like to hire for two sets of skills, starters and scalers. So you either know how to start a company from zero, which is invaluable to early stage founders, or you know how to scale a company well past $100 million. So in this case, we had a scaler who had been at Twilio from early days and had grown it. And he had one of his PMs from Twilio come to him with an idea in the new data stack, but it was a very fuzzy idea. And so he worked with us because we had invested in companies like Fivetran, which were influential and key companies in the new data stack. And they worked together and we've now put, I think, four or $5 million into this company. It's off to the races. Oh, great. Wonderful. So Propel Data. Propel Data. Okay, great. Yeah, just for completeness. So in the prior fund, we had a company in a totally different space in the real estate space called Side, which is one of these companies that has benefited from growing to a certain level of scale where it's been attractive to a number of the investors we were talking about before. And Side started as an EIR in our office who was going through a number of ideas in verticals he found interesting. And over the course of, call it six to 12 months, they narrowed in on the real estate sector and the idea, and then he was off to the races. And what is the idea? Is this a fractional ownership type company? Side is basically a virtual real estate brokerage platform for the best agents across the existing real estate players. So if you're an outstanding California real estate agent, rather than give up a lot of economics to Compass or to Coldwell Banker, you'd sign up for Side and be able to maintain most of the brand control while getting most of the back office functions taken care of for you. Oh, interesting. So who's it competing with most directly? Well, ultimately, what it's doing is it's skimming the top of all of the best real estate brokerages in terms of the agents and creating this virtual mm -hmm. brokerage. Right, right. Of course, the market is not thr thriving right now. I think PropTech is so interesting and there's a lot of great real estate startups. And I wonder what they're going through right now as the market completely freezes up. Any insight into what's happening there, how they're getting through? Well, them? so absolutely the whole market is slowing down and every prop tech startup will have to deal with that. In right. Side's case, I think the key advantage they have is, as I said, because they get to skim the best performing real estate agents, they have an army of entrepreneurs they empower that have thrived before in good times and bad times and are now preparing to thrive in bad times. And I mm. think when you're skimming the top 10%, that's probably a more durable, consistent business than when you're serving top to bottom instead of real estate agents with a proposition. 
Another company that Matrix apparently owns quite a bit of is Canva. Do you have like a 25% stake in that company? Is that public or could you make it? I do not. So Canva is a little bit different because it was out of market when we did it. Well, we are top three on that cap table. So we invested the largest check, I believe, in the seed round and own in the single digits, but it's a large and valuable company. And as I said, I think there are two folks. Uh, there's an investor who was in the pre-seed round, and then there's a large multi-stage investor who's accumulated a position across many rounds. But Canva was right in the middle of a thesis we were pursuing in the early 2010s, which was going across software categories and looking at where SaaS opportunities could combine a poorly served market with a more addressable end user and some ability to get virality going. So low cost customer acquisition and build a deep app as well. So it was during a period when we invested, I think, in HubSpot and Zendesk, and then Canva was our one out of the US bet in the space. Great. I'm just wondering, that's a company that was founded in 2012-ish? Yeah. So why didn't that company go public? Well, so Canva is a terrific business. And I think will be good times, bad times, great IPO when it comes. Typically, companies go out, at least in our portfolio, not just because the windows open or close, but because of something that will strategically help the business. And sometimes it's as tactical as the company is growing very quickly, but it's consuming a lot of cash and having access to the public market lets you do that. And when you can combine that with an open window, it's a kind of win-win for everyone. In Canvas case, they grow as well or better than a lot of our private SaaS companies and some of the kind of best private SaaS companies. And they just haven't needed to time out this public market event where they can go public and raise a whole ton of cash to grow even faster. Mm-hmm. And you don't think there would be maybe a, like a, a benefit in terms of just public awareness of Canva? I mean, it'll come, obviously. It will come. And there are millions and millions of paying users on the mm-hmm. platform. So I think this is a company that's, that's done the virality thing just right. It's viral like a consumer company effective in making money like a B2B SaaS company. Well, there's so many really great solid companies that didn't go out that are probably still doing well, but maybe whose employees are also looking to exit or gain some liquidity. Is buying secondary stakes a part of your business? How do you think about secondary? Do you encourage your portfolio companies to stage secondary offerings? Do you buy secondary stakes as some percentage of your overall funds? So to the first question, it really is a case-by-case situation. In some companies, creating an active secondary pool for long-tenured employees who need to get a little liquidity, but who are still very committed to the mission, it makes sense. And in those cases, we will absolutely participate. And where we have rights of first refusal, we'll be eager buyers, especially if we have a point of view that it's still a great entry price for us to acquire more. And then in some cases, you'll get a situation where, and I think this, by the way, will likely go away in the new world that we live in, where to be competitive, a mid or late stage fund will create an opportunity for founders and potentially early employees to take some money off the table and get some liquidity. And I think in those cases where it's early in the company's history and where taking this money off the table could create a misalignment among the early investors and the founding team, and more importantly, the employees that are coming on board with a vesting period and option exercise period should they leave the company, we try to be rational and conservative to make sure that as many people stay with the same set of incentives to the right point in the journey. Sure. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised by how freewheeling that that piece of the scene had become with some founders of two-year-old companies selling huge stakes. I'm sure to the chagrin of some of their... Yeah, I I agree. I mean, look, I think because of our portfolio, we got dragged along to uh, tolerate more of this than we would have left to our own devices. What I would tell you, having just 
live this and having seen some horror stories in the press and through friends is that I've got even more conviction at this point that if a founder or an early employee is selling a meaningful stake and we feel like that is premature, we and others should be selling right alongside them. Yeah, that's a great point. And I appreciate your candor here because so many people will point fingers and not say, I was the party to this. So I appreciate that. Also, just for my own edification and for listeners and readers, can you explain to me how Matrix is this really massive operation? I mean, like Sequoia, you have these branches in other countries. You've got Matrix China, you've got Matrix India started in 2006 and 2008, respectively. How does that work? Do you work together in some capacity Do you share LPs? So the most important difference between the matrix operations and others that have set teams up overseas is that in our case, we all share an interest in the stage that we invest in, in that all three geographies try very, very hard to be as early as possible. And we share an interest in the kind of founders we like to partner with. But a lot of the other day-to-day stuff gets distributed to the local geography. And that goes back to When the teams were set up, our belief, the belief of the managing team at Matrix at the time was that you need to have local people making local decisions as much as you possibly can, or you'll very quickly, as a venture market develops, be out of step and not as competitive as a local native team might be. And so we run fairly distributed that way. The teams will cross-collaborate across geographies when a theme emerges. So for instance, for 2021, Applied AI was a big theme that emerged for us here in the US. And so we share knowledge with those teams. Or when there was the micromobility revolution that started first in China, the China team shared insights back with us. And we do that by getting together once a year, at least twice during COVID, virtually a number of times a year. But generally speaking, our cadence of what we're pursuing is left to each of the geographies to do. Okay. And then, Antonio, in terms of your themes for 2022, and if you have any idea what you're going to be focused on in 2023, what are these and have they changed at all? They've evolved. They've evolved. We like running up and down the stack more than most funds do. And what I mean is we will not be put off by investing in a semiconductor company that's going to put a chip in a different kind of cloud server. And we'll run all the way up to user-facing applications like Canva, which we talked about, or HubSpot, or Zendesk. And The advantage of having a small team of people that can do every one of those layers, mostly in B2B, but some in marketplaces and consumer facing as well, is that you can bring the right level of expertise to any opportunity. And so we generally work at the beginning of the year to identify some themes. For 2022, our big theme was uh, applied AI as it affected everything from SaaS applications to software infrastructure, to networking, to what happens in the data center. And then we bring that view to the verticals we cover. And those verticals are B2B SaaS, FinTech, digital health, semiconductor components. And so it's in bringing that applied AI theme to every one of those verticals where there's usually somebody on the team that's the the vertical expert that the most interesting opportunities emerge. And they tend to be in theme and in vertical as opposed to a very specific and concrete thesis that we can run. I'm embarrassed how little I know about the semiconductor market, but obviously decades ago, it was a huge business. And then it seemed like we had these players rise up and there wasn't a lot of opportunity and it's a very expensive business. It wasn't a lot of opportunity for startups. What are some of the most interesting trends in that that you're seeing? I mean, obviously materials have been harder to come by and are recently expensive. Well, the most interesting thing is that most of the computing cycles have moved to either end of a barbell, Connie. So they're either running inside of a data center run by Amazon or Google or Microsoft or one of the other hyperscalers, or it's running in your pocket on whatever your latest smartphone is, whether it's an iPhone or an Android. And so 
the demand profile has changed from Intel's just going to churn out crap tons of PC processors and, and one of these SKU matrices that makes your eyes cross because of how many different intersections of customer segment and type of PC and type of laptop to the workloads have really centralized where you have a set of constraints around heat and performance that you need to meet or all the way to your pocket where you have a certain set of constraints around the power that you're actually going to be able to put into that chip. And the constraint in the middle of that demand changing has been that Moore's laws kind of run out of gas. And so you're doing more in parallel cores and you're doing more with new architectures that in the old monopoly days of Intel, you you just wouldn't have gotten funded because Intel would have crushed you in that SKU matrix somewhere. And so for us, opportunity is looking at those workloads through a new perspective, which is things are possible now that weren't before. And there are a number of existence proofs, whether it's on the processor architecture side with RISC-V or whether it's on the data center side with a lot of the stuff that's being done to co-package networking and processing for these hyperscalers. We've invested across the board and keep looking at opportunities there with a subset of our team. And also, because you are focused so much on software infrastructure and B2B, just wondering if you happen to see a recent Wall Street Journal article talking about CIOs still waiting for their cloud investments to pay off and becoming disillusioned by the cost of cloud architecture. Do you think we could see things swing back in the opposite direction? Or do you think it's just early on and we're still on a learning curve here? Let me put it to you this way. Mm. The tidal wave is going to continue moving stuff from on-premise to the cloud. Mm. Now, tidal wave is the wrong metaphor because I think we may take half a step back for every three step forwards we take there. And Mm. some of those will come around people getting ridiculously large bills because they're not managing their spend correctly. Interesting area for investment. Some of it will come because people feel that there's a different profile of compute versus storage that they need for whatever they're doing in their company. But ultimately, the inexorable trend here seems to be to get stuff to the cloud as a function of the fact that somebody else can deal with the CapEx problem and the managing of the low-level infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And just as important in the case of most CIOs, and I'll look up this article, I didn't see it. Benefits of moving the data to the cloud is that you can do a lot more from it. So I'll just give you a quick example. In the mid-2000s, we invested in a company called Natiza, which was a million and a half dollar appliance that PepsiCo and Burger King would buy to compute all the store sales and who needs a Pepsi with a Whopper versus fries. The company went public and was very successful and ultimately was bought by IBM in the 2010s. That pattern of you buy big honking iron and put it into some cooled room in the basement of your building if you're PepsiCo is now been replaced by a a whole bunch of cloud only or cloud mostly players that take all that data warehouse into the cloud. So that would be Snowflake would be the standalone, but Google has an offering and Amazon has an offering and there's a whole bunch of things. Cloudflare wants to do more of this. Exactly. There's a whole bunch of things CIOs have realized that you can do with that data once the data warehouse is in the cloud and accessible by anyone. And so you get companies like the company I mentioned before we invested in, Fivetran, which is the dominant category leader in getting your data from HubSpot, Zendesk, Salesforce, and hundreds of other tools into your data warehouse so that you can do interesting stuff with that from an analytic perspective that you wouldn't have been able to do before because you were going seven stories into your basement and talking to the one guy with access to the Natiza warehouse. Right. So I think that that's the kind of pattern that makes it hard to see a big backlash. That said, it would be great from an investment perspective if there was a backlash because there would be all sorts of new <laughs> opportunities. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. I am seeing a lot of startups that are focused on helping with their spend management now, which is not surprising. Yeah. One other thing, and I want to let you go, Antonio, but I didn't hear you mention crypto or Web3. What are yeah. your thoughts on this? Is that a thing? Yeah. 
over my decade here, we've had some good fortune in backing, this wasn't the explicit thesis, but backing companies that represented computing moving off your computer or off your phone to new interfaces, new kind of computing platforms. And so we were early investors in Oculus and in this company called Control Labs, which were two different ends of that, that ironically met at Facebook after a couple of acquisitions. And it's a pattern we like. And so for the last three years, we've been looking at this Web3 space and thinking, wow, is this a new way of moving computing off of data centers, which we were just talking about? And is this a new computing platform? And I have to tell you, and I think that the advantage of having nine partners is that people can keep me honest here. Mm -hmm. But my own personal view is that it's a bit of a mirage. Mm -hmm. And my own personal view is that a trustless distributed database is pretty interesting for a number of applications on both the B2B side and the consumer space. Mm -hmm. But most of the stuff out there, including, I dare say, most of the stuff that's made a lot of people a lot of of money over this two-year speculative boom that we just seem to have come to an end just feels like it's wishful thinking at its best. You're not hearing me mention it because we're not like doubling and tripling down. We didn't raise $800 million to put half of it into Web3 applications. We have a couple of investments, but I'd say that like most of our new interesting area investments, it's because we've followed founders from payments into Web3 or from prop tech into Web3, and less because we're excited about the prospect of starting a Web3 practice here until we see utility come to the applications. Right. And one quickly related question, are you a registered investment advisor or would you contemplate becoming one? We've been thinking about this on a low priority thread for probably 24 months now, but we haven't pulled the trigger and we are not one now. Okay, great. Antonio, it's so nice to talk to you. I'm sorry it's taken us so long to connect. It's kind of ridiculous now. I really regret that. Me too. Me too. (laughs) So we must do this in San Francisco in the flesh or in New York in the flesh. Yeah, I love it. Definitely. Well, thank you again for your time. Really appreciate it. Congratulations on the fun and your continued momentum. And we'll have to figure out a time to get together. Yes. All right. Take care. Thank you, Connie. Bye. That's it. Thanks, everybody. And a special thanks to findem.ai. Please check out their special offer for Strictly VC listeners. Have a terrific weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.